Mark chapter 8, verse 1. One more invitation as you're doing that. Uh, Isaac, will you put that up on the screen? I just want to highlight um, where you go to sign up for events. And the one that he didn't mention this morning is the Rule of Life seminar coming up. So what is this? Well, we decided uh, a while ago, you guys voted on this topic. We have what we call living room discussions where we we talk about uh, things that you want to talk about in an evening setting. And one of the ones that people voted on was how to have like a life with God. How to, just practically speaking, how do you have a spiritual life, uh, habits of holiness. And so what we decided to do is instead of a living room discussion, we decided to turn this into a seminar that you can attend that's going to be half a day. It's going to be in a retreat-like setting at the Franciscan Renewal Center, a beautiful place in town. Uh, with like little chapels and, you know, uh, soundproof chapels and prayer uh, gardens and places where you can kind of spread out. And it's going to be a guided kind of discussion. Uh, there's going to be some, some mini seminars within this so that you can construct for yourself uh, for the next year an intentional way for you to have a life with God. And we thought that would be a value. There's only 35 spots available. So that's why I put it up on the screen. If you're interested in this... Um, then please do sign up soon because it is space is limited for it. What's not in the bulletin as well is that lunch is provided and also childcare if you uh, if you need that. It's fifteen dollars a person to do this. This just covers our cost of, of holding at the Franciscan Renewal Center, uh, but it's only twenty dollars per couple. So if you do it together, it's just twenty bucks. Uh, but please do sign up today at that link if you are interested in doing that because it could go fast. So we're in Mark chapter one today. Sorry, Mark chapter eight, verse one. And why don't we pray as we come to God's word this morning. Let's pray. God, we know that your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, able to make us wise. It will not return void. This is what your word says about itself. It, it goes forward and it's powerful. Even just the reading of it can change a hardened person towards you to a softer stance towards you. And so we pray that you would be here by your spirit this morning as you promised and not return void what's going to be read. That we would hear and receive and be excited about, be changed, be, be given life by what this person, Jesus Christ, has done for us and how he lived and how he died for us. I pray that you would be here in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage for you is also in your bulletin this morning. Let's read Mark chapter 8, verse 1 following. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and he blessed them. He said, that, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. 
And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into a boat with the disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. So I have an older cousin uh, his name is Brent, and about 15 years ago, he had a tragic accident, and he was at work, and he slipped, and he hit the back of his head, and he had to go to the hospital and everything, and they surgeries, etc., and uh, the result was that he lost all of his memories, so uh, he was able, it was weird, he was able to remember certain things, he could remember how to read, how to talk, uh, he remembered certain scientific facts and mathematics and that kind of stuff. But all of the personal connections that he had, uh, he, he lost. So he had to relearn who his wife was. He had to relearn who his kids were. And it was this long process. He had to relive everything that he had experienced in his life. Now, I'm about to share something that is, is kind of lighthearted and, and funny. And uh, just so you don't think I'm a jerk, right, this is... Just for some context, uh, this was years and years and years ago that this accident happened. And you know how it is in your family, right? You, you, you learn to make light of, of the situation. And um, so that's the context of this. And actually, it was his kids, my second cousins, who told me this story. But uh, as he was reliving all of these things, one of the things that they had to reteach him about was Star Wars. And... Now, this was important because he was a huge Star Wars fan. So he kind of grew up in the, in the whole, you know, when the first ones came out. And so he was just a huge nerd about Star Wars. And so they were excited to show him all of the Star Wars, you know, movies again and to let him make all those connections for uh, the second time. And they just shared the story about when they were watching uh, for the first time again, uh, The Empire Strikes Back. And we get to the famous scene near the end, right? Spoiler alert. Um, from 1981 or whatever it was. Um, you know, Luke, it's like, you killed my father. And then Darth Vader says, I am your father. And they said their, their dad, Brent, just went, <gasps> you know, like, he just visibly reacted to this thing. Again, as a 40-something-year-old man that he had experienced Growing up, so he was he was he goes back and he relives this thing that he'd already lived, for the, but he he does so for the first time, 
in a sense. This amazing experience he gets to have again. Like I, I like to ask that question sometimes of our small group. Like, you know, what's one book or one movie that, that you, just, you wish that you could go back and see again for the first time, right? That's, that's a good question. Uh, it's, it's so good. It was so transformational that it just made such an impact that you'd, lo- you'd love to just experience it again, to relive it. The disciples are reliving one of the most amazing experiences that ever happened. They're reliving the feeding of a great multitude again. Jesus, just two chapters before, has, has fed the 5,000. This is the more famous story. This is the, the one today is, is the one that people don't realize. Jesus actually fed 4,000 as well. And the disciples, again, as the passage we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 is not really about the crowd so much. It's not really about all those people who got fed. It's about teaching the disciples how to have an abundant mindset towards Jesus and that he provides for them. And the same is true of this story as they relive Jesus feeding all these multitudes again and seeing him as the true abundance and the true bread for life. It's so similar. There's some similarities with this story that some people, some scholars would say that, well, maybe this was just like one event. Uh, and, and people, you know, those ancient people were so dumb, they, they, couldn't, they, couldn't, they got all confused. And so somehow over time, these two stories got put together in near the same spot. But uh, in fact, they were probably the same event. Now, what do we think of something like that? I would say no. First of all, this is in a different place. The setting is totally different. This is outside of the, the pe- this is a gathering of, of, of the nations, we're going to talk about that in a second. This is not just those who are in Galilee. This is lots of nations. And so that's strategically put in Mark for a reason. Also, the, the numbers are different and the details are different. But more importantly, what Mark is doing in this passage would make no sense if this was the same event. Because the whole point of this passage is to recall for the disciples how they didn't get it the first time. And so verses 18 and following wouldn't make any sense as Jesus refers back to, well, hey, how many, to- how many loaves did you pick up when, when we fed the 5,000? And then he refers to this as a separate event. The whole point of the passage, it would be very ironic if this was kind of the same thing and people's memories are fuzzy, because the whole point of the passage is this kind of spiritual amnesia. It's this forgetting about what God has already done. That's the point. And it's a point that we need to hear as well. The question that he asks them in verse 18, do you not remember? It's to his disciples. And it's not clear how much the people who were fed, either the 5,000 or the 4,000, actually understood what Jesus was doing. They saw all this food coming out to them. But the disciples were up close and they see Jesus actually multiplying this food. And so he's talking to them. Do you not remember? You've been given the privilege of reliving this. And then as they leave from there and they only have one loaf again, they forget. And so they, he keeps coming back and gently reminding them that he is the one who feeds. He is the one who satisfies. Forgetting. This is something that we do as well. This is a quote from Sinclair Ferguson, great pastor, scholar, and he said this, when you think about it, virtually every failure in our Christian lives can be traced back to a failure here. We forget who God is, or we forget who we are. Every failure, he says, virtually, 
can be attributed to this. We forget who God is or we forget who we are. Now, interestingly, in this passage, the disciples forget who God is. They forget that God has sent Jesus and that he has he's given him the power over abundance. And the Pharisees, they forget who they are. They forget that they don't understand everything and that they also need Jesus. Another way of putting it is, is this. The disciples receive a sign, and it's not enough for them. But the Pharisees demand a sign and don't get one. Who are the faithful people? The faithful people are the ones who are waiting three days in the desert to be fed by every word that Jesus says. That are dependent, that are hungry, and that are ultimately satisfied by Him. Everyone else is forgetting or demanding. So I want us to be very clear this morning and so that we can remember. So that we don't suffer from the same kind of spiritual amnesia. And so the point is very simple, but we're just going to come back to it over and over again so we don't forget it. Here's what I want you to remember. Jesus is the only bread that satisfies. Jesus is the only bread that satisfies. Today, the Sunday school answer is the acceptable one. What's the Sunday school answer? Jesus, right? So I'm going to ask three, three basic questions, and I, I want you to respond in your heart. Maybe I'll even have you do it out loud this morning. The answer is Jesus. I'll go ahead and give you the answers. All three of them are Jesus, so that you can remember. The first question is this. Where do you go when you're empty? Look at verse 1. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Now, look, these people have been listening to Jesus for three days, three days. They've been hanging on every word that he says. Now, what does that mean? It means clearly that Jesus is satisfying a deeper need than their physical hunger. Doesn't it mean that? I mean, they don't even want to go away to get a snack. It's like Jesus is, is teaching them, and if he was boring, if he was irrelevant, if he didn't matter to them, they would go and eat, wouldn't they? But they're hanging on every word that he says, and they're not even thinking about food. They are fasting. This is what fasting is. They're they're taking a break from physical food so they can be fed on Christ. And it's it's a very good spiritual practice that that many of us have lost because um, what fasting teaches us is to be controlled by Christ. I mean, normally food sets the pattern and the control for our day, doesn't it? I mean, we think about meetings as being before lunch or after lunch, right? Uh, you know, or after dinner. Like, our time is set up so that we can eat three times a day. We keep coming back to this same pattern over and over again every single day. Food sets the schedule. When you fast, you're, you're, you're saying instead, Christ is going to set the schedule. 
I'm not going to be dictated by, the, by my own hunger. I'm going to let him set the schedule. And so when I'm irritable and when I'm hungry and when I'm lustful and when I need something and I, I'm dependent and I realize that I don't run directly to food right away, I'm running to him. I'm being fed by him. And we can do that for a while without fainting. It's good for us. So clearly Jesus is, is that food for them. They're, they're controlled by him. And he, he talks to them about feeding on both a physical and a spiritual level. Of course, he cares about their physical concern. He's worried that they're going to faint if they leave his presence because they have to go a long way. But he's also talking in a spiritual sense. Interestingly, that word faint there, he's worried about them fainting on the way, is often used not of physical fainting, but of being discouraged or being let down. So it's used in Galatians chapter 6. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow faint in doing good. Don't get discouraged. And so Jesus is worried about them physically, but also about them spiritually. And he's also teaching the disciples here about what they should do with people. He's teaching them how to feed them. And the disciples want to turn people away again. And what Jesus is saying, look, he's testing them a little bit. When people are hungry for me, what are you going to do? Are you going to turn them away or are you going to bring them back to me? This is some, a word to all leaders and pastors and, and teachers, something I wrestle with as well. Because we ask this question, what the disciples asked, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? How is it possible that, that people are cared for and, and taken care of in this world, spiritually, physically, emotionally? It weighs on leaders. How can one do this, the disciples say? It's the right kind of question. And the question is answered with the Sunday school answer. So you've got you to feed them me. You've got to bring them back to me. I have to be the abundance. It's something we wrestle with because I know many of you are faint. Like your marriages are in trouble. You're spiritually bored and tired and disconnected. Any number of things. You have hard pasts. You're wrestling with things that keeps, keep coming up. Sinful patterns. Where do we go? If the answer isn't Jesus, and we're going to talk about what that means, then it will never fill up. Let's be real basic. Jesus is the only bread that satisfies the empty. The people, and there's, there is an emptiness in us. There's a great article uh, written in 1990, actually. That's like 30 years ago, by the way. Um, it's still so relevant. Philip Cushman wrote an article. He's a psychologist, and he said, he wrote an article in 1990 called Why the Self is Empty. Why the Self is Empty. It's, it's worth reading again. But here's what he says and the whole thesis of his, of his article. The thesis of this article is that the current self is constructed as empty. And as a result, the state, and he includes advertising and marketing and big business and, and the actual state in that, the result, the state controls its population not by restricting impulses in its citizens as it did in Victorian times, but by creating and manipulating their wish to be soothed organized and made cohesive by, hear this, 
momentarily filling them up. Here's what he's saying. Look, our, for the last couple hundred years, we have been emptying the self. We've been having it harder and harder to feel like we are fulfilled, full people. Why? He goes on to describe. Because emptiness, in part, is an absence of communal forms and beliefs. As, as our culture has gone away from communal forms, that's what we're doing here this morning, by the way. This is a communal form and belief that we're constructing together. We're understanding the world. There's a common life here. There's a common belief. And because those things have gone away more and more, the self is emptied. Individuals in the post-war era are thus particularly vulnerable to influence from cultural forms, such as advertising, that emanate authority and certainty. Fills us momentarily to say, if I get that, I will be happy. If I arrive there, I will be satisfied. If I achieve this, it will mean everything to me. We fill ourselves with media, with products, with time, with vacations, with TED Talks, with email signups, you know, things that promise something to us, and it's a momentary fill up. This will fill me, and it never does. Only with Jesus is there such an abundance that there's leftovers. Because that's what he says here, what he draws the disciples' attention back to is, you remember, I not only filled you, there was leftover. Your cup was so full, it was overflowing. And he reminds them. He brings them back to himself. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? Twelve. And when I did it for the 4,000, how many pieces did you take up? Seven. This is Christ's abundance. Why, why those numbers even? Twelve. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked to the 5,000. This was for Israel. The feeding of the 5,000 was a gathering of Israelites. And there was 12 baskets left over because we said, going back to the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 is the number for Israel. And so what he's saying is, I am in abundance for Israel, but now we're moving out into the nations. Remember just... Last week, the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus goes into Tyre and Sidon. He goes into a different place, and he shows that the gospel is going to be for even these who are outside. And so now he's feeding the 4,000, and there's seven baskets left over. Why? Because seven is the number for the nations. From Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, this is to God's people as they were coming into the land. God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And this is a gathering of the nations. This is not just Israel here present to be fed at the 4,000. It's for the nations. You can look again at the seven churches of Revelation, those churches that were scattered out, right? That's the Revelation churches were a picture of all the churches to come. In Ephesus and Laodicea and all these, there's seven of them. They are for the nations. So Jesus is saying, I'm in abundance not just for you, Israel. I'm in abundance now for the whole world. Where do you go when you feel empty? Second question, where do you go when you don't understand? Look at verse 11. We'll go to the Pharisees here. As they come... 
Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, the contrast couldn't be more clear. I mean, the people are waiting in the desert for three days, not eating, hanging on every word that Jesus says. And the Pharisees come not to listen, but to argue. They come full, full of themselves, rather than being empty. Now, to be fair to them, they want to understand, right? They want to understand. They want some certainty. That's why they're asking him for a sign. They're trying to understand how does Jesus fit into the worldview that I've already decided is true. And so they want certainty. They want Jesus to give them a sign. This discourages Jesus, though. Why? He sighs deeply in his spirit. Why? Because they have already received enough to believe. They've already received enough to believe in Jesus' name. This, this quest for certainty and for a sign, he says, is an empty one. You will not be satisfied by it. That's what he means when he says no sign will be given to this generation. He's not angry. He's not like yelling at them like, no, I'm not going to give you a sign. He's saying, look, there is no sign that I could do that, you, that you would convince you. You've already seen me do all of these things. It's not a sign that you're looking for. You think that you're looking for a sign, but you're not. And then he leaves. And by the way, Jesus is done with Galilee now in Mark's Gospel. This is where he's been almost the whole time. And now the book of Mark shifts and the rest of it is about his move towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. He goes back one time, but it's in secret. He, he's, he's like, this, this, I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> you know, I'm checking out. He's done what he came to do. These are his final words to them. Look, you're looking for a sign. You think that it's going to provide this certainty for you, but it won't. Where do you go when you don't understand? They went to a sign. Here's where we go. Rationalism, scientific certainty. That's what we demand for faith, right? Proof. If you could just prove God to me, then I would believe in Him. I demand that you do that before I put my faith in you. Tim Keller talks about this, what he calls proofism, in one of his books, Making Sense of God, incredible book. And what he describes there is that that's not, that's not an accurate statement. When we say, all I want is proof. Just like the Pharisees are coming and demanding a sign, we demand proof. But here's the thing, he argues. No matter what your religious position is, it doesn't matter if you follow after Jesus this morning, you, that you believe in him, if you're a secular person, if you, you know, think that basically science and rationalism are the, the things that help us understand the world, whatever your position is, there are many things that you take without proof, that you believe without proof. 
In fact, some of the most important things, the most foundational things, are things that you believe without proof. Here's an example. Human rights. Human rights. The fact that we shouldn't kill other people. We shouldn't take advantage of people who are in lowly condition. Almost everybody in our culture agrees on that principle. But it's something that cannot be proven scientifically. In fact, you could prove the opposite if you wanted to, right? If you believe that, that our whole worldview is shaped entirely by the, the story of, you know, of, of chaos to, to present moment, you know, uh, enlightenment, and that, that kind of Darwinian narrative is, is the, the one true story, then you could argue the reason why we're here today is because our ancestors crushed and killed people. It's not evident. It's not proven that we should take care of one another. And yet we all believe it. Why? Well, I mean, because the Western story has been shaped by Christianity, Judeo-Christianity. I mean, this is, this is one of the things that we have impacted the culture with. It's not self-evident that that would be true. And so what we often do is we often, like, we put ourselves in the position of the Pharisees here. And we say, like, okay, well, I, I believe because of rationality. I believe because of certainty. And other, you know, I believe in science because it's proven. I believe, in, you know, some people believe in, in God because of faith. And that's a false dichotomy. And many, many philosophers and scholars on both sides have, have shown this. That, that almost certainly the reason why we all believe what we believe is a mixture of rationality and faith. They have to both be there. That's what makes the Christian story so compelling. And what Christianity says and what Jesus is emphasizing here is, look, you think that you need a sign to follow me, but you don't need a sign. You need to follow me as a person. And here's what we often do. We say, like, I just need a system. I need to understand exactly how it works, how, how faith works with science, how whatever. We, we need this certainty before we can believe. And look, what Christianity says is, no, you trust a person first. You don't trust a system first. You trust Jesus Christ. You take Him as certain. Does that take faith? Of course it takes faith. But you need to see that every single position has a starting point of faith. Every position. Are you so sure that Jesus is less certain than other things? Are you certain that the other answers that you might look to are more certain? I was revisiting this week a, a YouTube video, one of my favorites, called Time Travel Dietitian. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. It's a husband and wife in the kitchen. She's making him a big breakfast. This is 1979. And they're dressed in their 70s attire. And she comes out with a big plate of eggs and bacon and uh, steak and bread. And just, you know, she's feeding her husband in a stereotypical way. And this guy appears out of the closet. <laughs> the light goes off. And he's like, wait, I'm from the future. He's a dietitian from the future. <laughs> and he says, don't eat those eggs. The eggs are full of cholesterol. You'll die of a heart attack. You know, and then he's like, that's just all I had to say. And he goes away. And then presumably he goes a little further into the future. And then poof, he appears again. Wait! Turns out we were wrong about the eggs. <laughs> <laughs> eggs contain two different kinds of cholesterol, apparently. And 
you know, just eat the egg whites and not the yolks. Um, and you, you should be fine. Leaves, poof. No, actually, the eggs are okay, you know. You know, it turns out that two different kinds of cholesterol doesn't equate to, like, when you eat it, you go into those two different places. So you should be fine with the eggs. Just don't eat that steak. The red meat will give you heart disease. Poof. We were wrong about the steak. <laughs> you know, just stay away from that bread. The bread is the problem. It makes sense if you think about it. Our Paleolithic ancestors, you know, they... they <laughs> <laughs> they didn't eat bread. Neither should you. Poof, he, he goes back. And he's like, wait, I went back to the Paleolithic age, and they're not doing so well. Um, so probably you should just exercise a little bit. And <laughs> that's the end of the I'm not picking on dietitians, of course. Are you so certain? The things that we're so certain of. I mean, is Pluto a planet or not? You know, like... <laughs> It was, and it wasn't, and it was, and it wasn't. And it's like, who are these people that are making all these decisions? And I'm not saying, I mean, science is cool. Like, Christians should be into science. Absolutely. But look, are you so certain that the things that, that other people come up with are sure, are true? Have they stood the test of time? Jesus has stood the test of time. There are billions of people who have found, as they read through the Gospels, this compelling person, not a system, that is amazing. This, this balance, it's, it's not irrational. It, it is rational, but it's faith, too. And this beautiful person. And it's not true that if you have one piece of evidence that now you will certainly be certain about Jesus. It's just not true. The Bible itself says it's not true. In Matthew 28, Jesus is about to give the Great Commission. You know, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And He's about to ascend into heaven and he's there after the resurrection. He's been raised from the dead. He's appeared to 500 people. He showed Thomas his, the holes in his hands and in his side. And he's shown all these people. And people are believing in him. And in Matthew 28 it says, They worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubt. Some are looking at the resurrected Jesus. And they doubt. You think, well, how could they do that? Why? You can easily see how. Well, Maybe that guy just looks like Jesus, right? Um, maybe they found a, just a lookalike, and these disciples are propagating this. Maybe he never really died. Maybe they, they said that he died, but that he actually recovered and he came back. These are actual theories, right, of the New Testament time. They're looking at the resurrected Jesus, and they doubt. This is true. It's just true of, of the way that faith works. It's not certain because of proof or a sign. It's certain because of Jesus Christ. Where do you go when you don't understand? Third and final question. We'll do this quickly. Where do you go when you are anxious? The disciples are still anxious after they've seen Jesus work over and over again. Verse 14, they'd forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Now, seeing this in quick succession, as we have, have been talking about over the last few weeks, we just think these guys are so idiotic, right? They have no bread. Why are they stressed about having no bread? Jesus has fed the 5,000. He's fed the 4,000. He's able 
to feed them. But the disciples are still anxious about their daily bread. And before we get self-righteous about it, how many times have you seen God work in your life? How many times have you trusted in Him, been warmed by His Word, understood something about Him, and then continued in your anxiety at the same time? It happens all the time. And I think it's the reason why Jesus uses here the imagery of bread. Because you have to eat. It's a, it's a picture of daily dependence. Every day you have to do something to get that satisfaction. It can't be a one-and-done thing. You need it multiple times a day, and so do you need Jesus. And this is the end of, of the breadcrumbs, what we've been calling the breadcrumbs. This is the, the bread passages of Mark, so at the feeding of the 5,000, and then the disciples needed to wash their hands before they had bread, and then the Syrophoenician woman said, hey, I need the bread of Israel right now. I'm a dog underneath the table, but I still want the crumbs. And here is the last passage about bread. Jesus doesn't mention bread again until he says, this is my body broken for you. And so what he leaves them with is, as he finishes describing how he needs to be their only satisfaction is a bunch of questions that they need to answer. Starting in verse 17, these are the questions that we can easily ask ourselves about our own faith and doubts. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? And then the last question, the very last verse, do you not yet understand? Could it be that your heart is hardened in your anxiety. That you have these eyes and ears to see basically how the world works, and maybe you've even used those eyes and ears to trust in Jesus, but you have trouble coming back and seeing again that, that faith in Him means something for this circumstance, for this thing that I'm going through. It's like this is somehow a new situation, and now I don't really trust in the same God anymore. This is what we do. Don't you remember how he's worked in the past? Remember this this morning. Jesus is the only bread that satisfies. When it comes to your emptiness, Jesus is the bread. When it comes to your understanding, Jesus himself is your certainty. When it comes to your anxiety, Jesus is your dependence coming back to him over and over again. Now, how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you see Jesus as this bread that satisfies, the only one that satisfies. There are lots of different ways you can do this. But the essential thing is this. You have to let him fill whatever you lack. He has to be the abundance for whatever is your absence. And there's, this is a room full of absences. I know that to be the fact. What do you lack? What do you lack? What do, you, do you lack friendship? You lack friendship. Look, the scripture says you can be the friend of God. And that, that doesn't mean that, you don't, that your longings for that are satisfied just by that. You, you, you're made to be connected to other people. But listen, that's where you start. It's noticing your absence, that lack, and then saying, would you be my friend? Would you... Fill that part of me that feels like it's absent. Do 
Do you lack certainty? This passage teaches believe anyway. Trust in God anyway. Certainty is a slippery thing. It's not, none of us are certain in every sense of everything. If you don't still have questions, if you don't still have wrestling and doubts, then you're probably not taking a proper pulse of your spiritual life. It's not a bunch of just gullible people in this room who just believe by faith and and close their minds off. We have questions. We have doubts. But look, you believe anyway because you trust. If Jesus is who He says He is, then it doesn't matter what your understanding of things is. Your understanding will necessarily be and always be limited. It matters what He says. And you trust it anyway. Do you keep getting blessed and you're receiving and, and you still, you're still not happy? You're still not fulfilled? Do you lack a sense of purpose and meaning? How is Jesus the abundance for that absence? I mean, maybe you should try fasting to get away from all the stuff that you have. Get away from the, the extra food and all of the technology you have and all of the abundance so that you can see Him as the abundance for what you're actually lacking. What do you lack? Start there. And then begin to entreat Him and contend with Him to fill you for that place. How can He become your abundance in the midst of this absence? Because the Sunday school answer is the right one. He's the only one that satisfies for that thing. Let's pray.